Hello, everyone. Welcome back. My guest today is Swami Sarva Priyananda. Swami is the minister and spiritual leader of the Vedanta Society of New York, and he assumed his duties there on January 6, 2017. Prior to this, he served as assistant minister of the Vedanta Society of Southern California for 13 months that began in 2015. Swami joined the Ramakrishna Mat and Mission in 1994 and received sannyas in 2004. Before being posted to the VSSC's Hollywood Temple, Swami served as, the, as an acharya of the monastic probationers training center at Belur Mat. He has served as Ram, the Ramakrishna Mat and Mission in various capacities, including being the vice principal of the Diogar Vitiapit High Secondary School, principal of the Shikshana Mandira Teacher Education College at Belor Mat, and the first registrar of the Vivekananda University at Belor Mat. So with that, hello, Swami. Thanks so much for joining me. Hello, and thank you for having me here. It's a real pleasure to talk to you on such a, a beautiful morning here in uh, Harlem in New York City. Um, so I would love to just get started before we start to talk about um, the work that you do and the philosophy of Vedanta and the Upanishads. I would just love to hear a little bit about your story and what led you to uh, become a sannyas and to study uh, the Vedanta. Oh, my story. Well, um, I grew up in a small city on the eastern coast of India, a city called Bhuvaneshwar. Mm. And I was lucky, I guess, because my parents were uh, spiritual seekers too. So, and they were initiated in the Ramakrishna tradition. So both my father and my mother, uh, they would, I would see them meditating morning and evening. And I, they would take me to the ashram. And I grew up reading a lot of books on Vivekananda and Vedanta and different uh, areas of spirituality. I guess I belong to the last generation before uh, internet and the cable TV, so all we had were books, and I was a voracious reader. Mm. So I read all sorts of things, but especially Vivekananda and Vedanta. And as I grew up, the way I started thinking was, look, here Vivekananda is talking about uh, the real nature of, um, uh, of, of the individual as being divine, as God within us. Mm -hmm. and that God does exist and God can be experienced and can be seen and that is the purpose of life and somehow all of that began to make sense for me and I used to go to the ashram on my own sometimes uh, getting scoldings from my mom because I was not neglecting my homework maybe or something and I remember people telling me oh that's for old people uh, <laughs> don't spend so much time in the ashram you're just a kid go and play or study or whatever but I still remember the, this um, old grand aunt of uh, mine who said, don't listen to them. Start young. That's the time to start mm. spiritual seeking. And uh, by the time I was in college, I had decided the goal of my life was to, to find God, to experience God. Just like the old books of Vedanta tell me, like Vivekananda was telling me. So when I finished college, I didn't waste a single day. I went straight and joined uh, uh, the Ramakrishna mission as a, as a novice. Mm. It's called a brahmachari. So I joined in 1994. Mm. And I've been a monk ever since, from 1994 onwards. Excellent. And in um, your years being a monk, you've been traveling around quite a bit. You spent some years in India, and then, and then you just relatively recently moved to the United States. Is that correct? That's correct. Uh, from 1994 till very recently, 
till just about a couple of years ago, I was in India, mostly in our main monastery in Belurmat, which was established by Swami Vivekananda. And after that, I was uh, sent to the Vedanta Society of Southern California mm -hmm. to work there. Uh, that was last year. And then here in New York, we have a Vedanta Society, which is in fact the first Vedanta Society. It was established by Swami Vivekananda in 1894, mm. when he came to this country in 1893 to attend the World Parliament of Religions in Chicago. A group of Americans gathered around him, and they wanted the teachings. So they started the Vedanta Society of New York in 1894. And uh, It's the same building? Uh, no. The oh. building has changed a number of times. But even this building is pretty old. It's on 34 West 71st Street, and it's an, a lovely old brownstone uh, more than 100 years old. We have, we have had it since 1920. Mm. Swami Vivekananda was not in this building, but he was in the Vedanta Society of New York. And uh, his classic Raja Yoga, which was one of the first uh, uh, popular English translations of the Patanjali Yoga Sutras, uh, with his own spin on it. And uh, a number of other works were actually written when he was in the Vedanta Society of New York. He was followed by some other disciples of Sri Ramakrishna, Swami Saradananda, Swami Turiyananda, and most notably Swami Abhedananda, who was here for 20 years, who worked here for 20 years in the, in the Vedanta Society of New York. And as I'm fond of telling uh, the monks in our main monastery in, in Belurmat, the Vedanta Society of New York is older than you are. <laughs> because Belurmat was started after uh, the Vedanta Society of New York. Wow, wow. So, so the Vedanta Society of New York is the original Vivekananda uh, yes, there was a monastery in India, but that was not Belurmat. Uh, the disciples of Ramakrishna had banded together um, as monks when Sri Ramakrishna passed away in 1886. Uh, so there was a monastery there, but Belurmat, the main monastery now, started in 1898, so four or five years after oh, the Vedanta Society mm. of New York. Excellent. So what are your observations since you've moved to the United States? Well, the scene is very different from yeah. uh, what Vivekananda found here. <laughs> um, what do you think are the key differences? Well, Eastern religions, Eastern spirituality is a big thing now. Yeah. If you read, um, for example, Phil Goldberg's American Veda, yes. which uh, beautifully traces the, the growth and s spread of Eastern religious ideas um, in American culture, the... the coming of different gurus and lamas and yogis from India, which, by the way, Vivekananda started it all in 1893. He was the first of this entire uh, range of teachers who have come over from the East. So because of that, that's one thing. There is much more awareness now. Uh, there is much more uh, multiculturality in America now. Yeah. Uh, when Vivekananda came, he was strange for Americans. He was an oddity. Though I must mention that even before Vivekananda came to the United States, Eastern thought had already come here. It was limited to an elite. Uh, for example, um, Emerson, yeah. the transcendentalists, of course. Emerson, we must mention, somebody called him the mind of America. Mm -hmm. And that mind, most people do not know, was heavily influenced by the Gita and, and Vedanta texts. Um, Thoreau, most famously in his Walden days, he would read the Bhagavad Gita every day in the morning. Um, Walt Whitman, who's yeah. been called the heart of America. Uh, so his work is uh, deeply influenced by Vedanta. But yes, on a mass scale, it started with Vivekananda and the teachers who followed him. At first, the Vedanta Society and then many others. 
So multiculturalism is also another big thing that we see, uh, and openness to different cultures is here. On the other hand, on the downside, I would say that in recent years, uh, I would say in the last 20 or 30 years, the world, America and world in, in general, should I say they have, the, have turned a little more materialistic? Because I live very close to Central Park. Yeah. And I go there and I see these aging hippies still singing the Beatles songs <laughs> and people gathering around. But the newer generation does not really know much about the Beatles. Mm -hmm. They come, it's like a, an American pilgrimage. They come there and they go see the Dakota where John Lennon and, uh, lived and Yoko Ono still lives. But it seems to look back to a day of uh, idealism, idealism and seeking, which seems to have gone down a little bit now. Yeah. So what I think now is that the same truths have to be represented again yeah. to the American youth, especially, uh, in a new way, in modern idiom, and responding to modern challenges. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I was watching... Um, I was watching... I can't remember what exactly it was. It was a documentary or something about the period of the 60s, which, you know, as you know, is a period of, of mass sort of change. Oh, yes, it was, it was talking about when um, Swami Prabhupada came and yes. began the Bhakti movement here. And it was uh, addressing how, you know, on the one hand, there were highly politicized um, people, and then on the other hand, there, were, there was highly spiritualized people. Like that, that sort of, those two streams were happening simultaneously. And it seems like now, while there is a strong, you know, there are a lot of spiritual seekers in the United States. It seems like there's a lot of political activity, but not an equally amount, a lot of, of spiritual activity responding to that sort of same dynamic. And I'm not, I'm not quite sure <clears throat> why that is, but yeah, I think you're right that we need to kind of revivify and, and find ways to, to, um, to introduce more people to these teachings. That's right. So, um, so let's talk a little bit about you know, now moving into, and I appreciate you mentioning because we haven't talked. I've, I, we interviewed Philip Goldberg before, but um, reminding um, the listeners that you know these ideas have been steeped in American history to some of the f most fundamental figures that we learn about in you know in American education and American history. And so, to to know that it's not sort of a very recent transplant, but that these ideas and and spiritual teachings have been germinating and uh, in the culture for some time I think is it's very inspiring and it shows that you know we've always been a little bit eastern in a certain kind of way yes um, the, the one of the things I really appreciated about your work and the articles that I was reading as I prepared for this interview was um, the the you talk about consciousness consciousness studies and in the introduction to this podcast I mentioned that we talk about consciousness consciousness studies and 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 so I really appreciated the article that you wrote about um, defining what you call the hard and the easy problem of consciousness right and how uh, consciousness according to Vedanta can be sort of a, a resolution um, of these two issues so will you kind of unpack that a little bit and talk about what the first of all what the hard and easy problem is and then kind of segue into a discussion around you know how um, the approach to consciousness within the Upanishads and the Vedanta is is um, solving this you know perennial problem right right I think this is a central problem for our time and for uh, the decades to go in in front of us the decades to come in front of us um, the key person here is 
David Chalmers, who is a, a philosopher from Australia, who, by the way, I, I did not know was right here in New York. He is in the uh, New York University. Yeah. In the New York University's uh, Brain, Mind, and Consciousness Unit. Um, he is important uh, in part because he's the one who, who coined the term the hard problem of consciousness. Now, let's talk a little bit about that. You see, consciousness, it would seem, should be of a very central area of investigation for science. After all, the fundamental thing about us is that we are conscious beings. Everything happens in our consciousness. Our life is basically our consciousness. And yet, it's uh, very interesting to note that science has actually not been interested in, in the problem of consciousness for a very long time. Yeah. Uh, it has been outward-looking, so studying the universe, and then coming closer, studying the body, and much more recently studying the mind also, but even there, there has been a reluctance to study the mind on its own terms. Uh, there is a tendency to study the mind as brain, study the mind as behavior. Um, it's only in recent times that consciousness itself has become a serious uh, area of, of scientific research. Yeah. Partly encouraged, I think, by the availability of a wide array of new um, technologies which allow us to study the brain in depth. Now, David Chalmers, he coined the ter term hard problem of consciousness in this context. He said when we investigate consciousness as um, in our study of brain science, he says that it divides neatly into two kinds of problems. The so-called easy problems, and easy I would put air quotes here, uh, because it's not easy in a technical sense, difficult, but easy problems in the sense that uh, one can now study what is happening in the brain when we do various things. So when you have a cup of coffee, the scientists can actually scan your brain and with fMRI and see which neurons are firing, and they, you, they go, ah, this is the coffee-drinking neuron. I mean, I'm joking, but it's not as that, that simple. But basically... Mine's active right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> basically, it's a science of correlations. Um, you do something, the subject does something in his or her conscious life, mm -hmm. and the scientists see what the brain does yeah. corresponding to that. So, in principle, it's a simple thing to do. Whereas... There is a very different kind of problem in consciousness, is how it feels like to be conscious. You see, consciousness is the only thing which has an inner and an outer dimension. For example, uh, there is a cup on your table, and a scientist can study it at the level of matter, at the, at the level of physics, at the level of chemistry, at the level of objects. Uh, it can, the scientist can study it, and that's the only thing to know about a cup. There is nothing, as far as we know, what it feels like to be a cup. Yeah. But there's a cat sitting on your couch now, and it has two dimensions. One is we can look at it, we can study it, and internally there is something like what it like feels like to be a cat. Um, Thomas Nagel, for example, in his landmark philosophical paper on, uh, on, um, you know, on, on what it is like to be a bat, yeah. he pointed out this distinction between the first-person perspective and the third-person perspective. So... The, another way of putting the difference would be that um, a scientist might examine the fluids in my stomach and my intestine and come to the conclusion, this person is hungry. Mm -hmm. Now, I could have told you just the same thing by the sensations that I'm experiencing. So science has taken a third-person perspective, coming at it from outside, as it were, 
and that's how you study the brain. But we have a first-person lived experience. There is something like seeing and hearing and smelling and touching. And this is what um, is first-person lived experience. This is what David Chalmers calls the hard problem of consciousness. Why is that a problem? How does something which is an object, like the brain, produce a first-person subjective experience? Yeah. There seems to be no, uh, no way to go from one to the other, from pure object to pure subject. Um, as somebody said, and I, I saw this cartoon where they're trying to explain how a physical system like the brain produces consciousness. Mm -hmm. And the cartoon, there's a scientist showing step one and step two and step three. Step one, two, and three is full of calculations. And then step five, you have consciousness. But in between step four, it says, a miracle. <laughs> <laughs> and the senior scientist is telling the junior scientist, I think you need to work on step four a little more. <laughs> so uh, as somebody put it, on one side, you have water. On the other side, you have wine. But in between, what happened, n nobody can say. So that's the hard problem of consciousness. Mm -hmm. And it deals with the very heart of consciousness. Because this first person's lived life which we have, this is our whole life. Our whole life is this first person movie we have. And this is what science finds it very difficult to deal with. Yeah. And a part of the problem seems is that, you know, you said it's a science of correlation, but the, 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 the wrong assumption seems to be that correlation implies causation, right? That right. just because there are corresponding brain states in the brain when I'm drinking coffee does not mean that the brain states create the experience of drinking coffee in, the kind of, in this kind of crude causal way. Is that correct? Yes. Um, it's not reductionist. Yeah. There is a tendency to reduce consciousness to brain states. Yes. Because it matches with the present scientific worldview. Exactly. So there's a desperation almost, I would say. And, and it leads to ludicrous uh, situations. There are actually those who want to eliminate consciousness altogether. Yeah. They say there's no such thing as consciousness. And we should just talk about brain states. Uh, brain states. It sounds absolutely terrible. This ter terrible. <laughs> and there are those who say that, no, there is consciousness, but it's an epiphenomenon. It's a product. Of a byproduct of brain states. But how that could be, the best that they can do is that, see, we have been able to explain so many things so far. For example, they'd say that life was thought to be a mystery, but we have cracked most of the mysteries of life right now, and we have made enormous progress. And so we hope to explain consciousness in the near future. But you see, in principle, even David Chalmers points this out, that uh, life uh, is still very objective. Whereas consciousness is, uh, is sub entirely subjective. So it's not, in principle, the same kind of problem altogether. And as you rightly state, that uh, brain states do not imply causation. They do, you cannot go from brain states to causation of consciousness. Yeah. It's like saying, everybody who walks into your apartment walks through the door. And if you say, the door is producing all these people. <laughs> well, the door did not produce all these people. They, it, they, they walked through your door. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that is the problem. I recently attended a beautiful, uh, a very interesting debate between uh, David Chalmers on one hand, and on the other hand was Christoph Koch, who is the chief scientist for the Paul Allen Brain Institute. And um, one took the hard problem, the first problem, irreducibility of consciousness side, and Christoph took the side of reductionism, trying to explain consciousness from uh, brain state. So what I am happy about is, now there are these very serious scientists who are talking very seriously about 
the core problem of consciousness. This is what Vedanta is all about. For thousands of years, this is what Vedanta has been talking about, uh, what you now call the hard problem of consciousness. Mm. Yes. Mm. So before we get into the, you know, really what Vedanta has, is teaching, um, I, I really liked the, your mention of the, the article around that Thomas Nagel wrote about what it's like to be a bat. And I just wanted to um, touch on one thing that you mentioned because I thought it was so interesting. Because the, the idea was that, um, uh, where the comparison was that, you know, human beings, we perceive through light waves. We're not seeing objects. We're seeing the light, you know, move into our retina, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then, but with bats, they have sonar. It's sound. sound. But you remarked in your paper that, that they're not, see, you know, they're not, it's, what they're experiencing isn't the sound waves per se. They're experiencing objects as well, just as we're experiencing objects. But, they're exp- but theirs, from the scientific external objective perspective, uh, that's a sound wave, you know, making that happen. Whereas from the objective scientific perspective, the light waves are what's happening. But in, in our own subjective experience of consciousness, we perceive objects in the world. And in the same way, um, the, the bat experiences objects in the world. So I thought that that contrasting that 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 um you know just because um we know that the sound waves of a bat are uh, is sort of the the mechanism through which they um perceive objects that doesn't mean that the internal experience of of the bat is is this um i don't know, you know sound waves bouncing back and forth right so i thought that was it was really interesting because it's like you will never have that kind of internal experience so we can't actually if we're if we want to have an understanding of that that reality, then we can't actually get inside that by just talking about it in this kind of mechanistic way. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So then, you know, remark. So then, segueing from that, what is Vedanta offering as a unique point of view in in this conversation? Well, let me take a step back and say a little bit about what Vedanta is. Yes. Yes. Great. Idea. Um, <clears throat> Vedanta, the word itself, means the highest or the final teachings of the Vedas. The Vedas, as we know, are the sacred texts of the Hindus. They are probably the uh, oldest existing religious spiritual texts of humanity. Um, they are collections of, um, of religious uh, literature dating back maybe four or 5,000 years or even more than that. It's difficult to date it uh, precisely. There are four collections of texts called the four Vedas, the Rig Veda, the Sama Veda, Atharva Veda, and Yajur Veda. Now, um, there's a lot of ritualism going on there, but in each of them, you find these texts called the Upanishads. Mm -hmm. So the Upanishads are parts of the Vedas, often found at the physical end of the text, but not always. So the Vedanta is the philosophy which is based on the Upanishads, because Upanishads are sometimes found at the end of the Vedas, or more correctly, they embody the final teachings of the Vedas. Now, these Upanishads are a remarkable collection of texts. Um, there is this uh, book, Dream, Waking, Dreaming, and Being, by Evan Thompson, who is mm. a philosopher in, in yeah, Canada. Yeah. And there he quotes another philosopher who um, says that the Upanishads are so important in human history that it would be uh, more fair to date the uh, human history not as AD and uh, uh, BC, but as before Upanishads and after Upanishads. They are that important. Mm. The science of um, uh, consciousness did not actually start 20 years ago or 30 years ago. We are now just talking about the hard problem of consciousness. 
But these things started with the Upanishads. Mm. The Upanishads are the science of consciousness par excellence. Um, Schopenhauer, the great German philosopher, he came upon a, a Latin translation of a Persian translation of the Sanskrit original of the Upanishads. And reading that, he was so taken up by it, he said that, uh, I consider there no study to be more beneficial than the study of these Upanishads, except perhaps the originals. Mm -hmm. And he said, the Upanishads have been the solace of my life, and they'll, they'll be the solace of my death, and so on. So the Upanishads are in incredible, and they are all about the science of consciousness. Um, to go into, to give you a sample, uh, there is uh, the Kena Upanishad. Literally, the Sanskrit word Kena means by what? So the first mantra of the Kena Upanishad goes, Keneshitam preshitam patati manah kena prana prathama prayeti yukta Keneshitam vajam imam vadanti Keneshitam chakshu shrotram Kaudeva chakshu shrotram yunakti What it means is, by what does my mind have this experience of thinking? What impels my speech? What gives me the experience of seeing, of hearing? Now, these questions are remarkable because these are the questions that I think, more or less, David Chalmers is asking today as the hard problem of consciousness. You see, um, the, the, the Upanishadic teacher here, uh, he's not talking about the physiological process of seeing or speaking, these are different physiological processes. The uh, auditory system and the vocal system and the visual system, they're different biological systems. But he's saying in the singular that what is the one thing which gives us all these varied experiences of seeing, of, of hearing, of uh, touching, of thinking, of speaking. And uh, then the answer comes in very cryptic language that the, the thing which you are looking for, it is the eye of the eye, it is the ear of the ear, it is the speech of the speech, and it is the mind of the mind. What it means is there is something which is different from our biological system and yet which pervades our biological system and makes these subsystems do what they were intended to do. And I give the example of electricity. If you ask... What is it that makes the light shine and the fan go and round and round and the microphone amplifies sound and the computer work? You'd obviously say, well, it's electricity. Now, electricity is something different from these systems, but it enters into these systems and makes them do what they do. Mm -hmm. So analogously, there is something which is, which is responsible for first-person experience, our experience as as uh, subjects who are alive and experiencing this world. And that is the essence of consciousness. Not only that, Vedanta says that this consciousness is in fact the fundamental reality of the world. And this consciousness is your own inner reality. What is your own inner reality is also the fundamental reality of the world. Uh, th that may be a little difficult to understand, but let me unpack it this way. According to Vedanta, the entire experience of the world is in consciousness. Mm -hmm. It's not like that we are conscious beings and then we go out to a pre-existing world and we, we touch an existing world and we experience it. It's not like that there are these tables and chairs and sunlight comes and illumines these tables and chairs. Rather, it is this consciousness itself which appears within itself as our world. Yeah. 
So the fundamental teaching of, of uh, Vedanta is that thou art, Tattvamasi, which is found in one of the Upanishads, the Chandogya Upanishad, that consciousness, which is the fundamental reality of the world, is what you really are. And this has many implications. We'll talk about that later. Um, this is where the religious aspect also comes in. This consciousness, call it the fundamental consciousness, pure consciousness, this is what Vedanta would like to call God. Yeah. The word in the Vedanta is Brahman. Mm -hmm. So this consciousness, which is our inner reality, our inner reality is called the Atman in Vedanta. This is also the reality of the universe, which is called Brahman in Vedanta. So you and God are in essence, as this pure consciousness, one reality. And Vedanta says you are this, and you can in fact realize yourself as this, and you must realize yourself as this, because that is the solution to all your life's problems. And realizing yourself as this is in fact the whole purpose of life. Yeah. Uh, could I just tell a little story? Please. which I, yes. Alan Watts. Love uh, Alan Watts. Yes, uh, in his inevitable wit. He says... The easiest way to explain this is to a little story which I tell children. And children seem to get it when they ask, what is this all about? The oldest of all, all questions, what's the meaning of all of this? He says, God is playing hide and seek. Yeah. There's a beautiful story he tells. Uh, it's a myth. It's, it's a some ch children's story, but it makes so much sense. God is playing hide and seek. Now, the problem is that poor God is the only thing that exists. So whom will you play hide-and-seek with? And so God, being very intelligent, hits upon this plan. Um, he says that let me hide myself and by pretending to be not myself. So God pretends to be not God and hides himself as you, as me, as that other person, as the cat on the couch, and indeed the couch itself. So God, pretending to be not God, becomes each of us and this universe. Now, God did such a good job of it that uh, he forgot that he was God. And so you and I, we go about our world in this world, and we do not know that we are, in a sense, we are that we are God. But because we are God, we can never really forget that. We can never really go away from that. So the whole game that we are playing now is God seeking himself in a hide-and-seek game, is trying to find himself. And that's what we are trying to do. And I think that's a, such a beautiful uh, way of putting it, you know. It is beautiful. A and it matches a similar story a monk told me in the Himalayas. He said, this life is, just like Alan Watts, he said, this life is hide-and-seek. When this entire universe has been created, God has hidden himself. And we are all running around trying to find God. And when this universe is finally destroyed in the big crunch or whatever, because, you know, the Hindus believe in a cycle of existence and creation and existence and dissolution, and again, creation, existence and dissolution, yeah. and so on. So when the universe is finally dissolved, planets and stars and living beings and all of us, we disappear back into the unmanifest, which is God's power, and God alone exists. And we are hidden, and God is looking for us. Where, where did those, those fellows go to? <laughs> so he finally projects the universe again and throws us back into the universe, and he hides himself, and this goes on. 
So the same story of hide and seek. So this is interesting because <clears throat> this seems to be a little bit different than the the teleological idea where there will be some endpoint where all is transcendent or you know all is resolved. But what you're saying is that you know the divine play, the high, the play of hide and seek, is an infinite game of God, and that and and so uh, which which is a beautiful. I I love this idea, and but it seems to contrast a little bit with one of the kind of prevailing views, which is that, you know, this kind of imminent world is somehow degenerate and sinful and and we're looking to transcend it. And then once we transcend it, we get to heaven, we're going to be there for eternity. But but the, what I hear you saying is, you know, according to the Vedanta, you know, everything is divine already, but there is this kind of ebb and flow, these cycles of the the kind of hiding and seeking and is it ad infinitum? Is that the idea, according to Vedanta, that this process right. just continues to unfold for all of time? Right. Both are true. That's the amazing thing about Vedanta. The transcendent is always there. Yeah. Uh, Brahman, as pure consciousness, existence, bliss, is always there. It was always there earlier, it's there now, and it'll always be there uh, in future. Because you can just see I'm using the language of time here, past, present, and future. But... At the same time, it appears as this uh, world of change and duality and uh, creation and existence and destruction. Now, this is the crucial point. Vedanta talks about two tiers of reality. One is the absolute reality, which is Brahman, which is transcendent and uh, eternally perfect, uh, existence, consciousness, bliss, and that's our real nature. We are that already. On the other hand, we must provide an explanation for this world because we are living in this world. It's not enough to say that Brahman is existence, consciousness, bliss, because we'll go good for Brahman. What about us? <laughs> Here I am and in New York and Harlem, and, and, uh, and uh, now what do I do with my life? So now what Vedanta says is this is the appearance of Brahman. Brahman, the reality, is eternally perfect as existence, consciousness, bliss, and it is so right now. The link between these two the journey from this appearance to reality, the journey is one from ignorance to knowledge. Yeah. It's not a journey through time. You see, it's not that in the teleological view, this is the only reality that is, and this will all come to an end and some kind of nice some ending point, at one yeah. point. That's one way of looking at it. But Vedanta does not say that. Advaita Vedanta specifically does not say that. Advaita Vedanta says that the transcendent is already perfect and it's here and now and forever. This appearance will go on forever. We cannot find a perfection in this universe of appearance. It's not that the universe will one day end in a perfection. Yeah. This will ebb and flow. Creation, existence and destruction will go on in an infinite wheel of existence and uh, infinite wheel, uh, it'll, it'll circle through that. But this is not the reality. As Alan Watts said, that this is, this is a story, actually. There is a reality behind the story. There is a truth behind this story. And that truth is that Brahman is right here and right now and available if we move out of this appearance into truth through mm -hmm. knowledge. Mm -hmm. When you realize that that thou art, tattvamasi, this is the secret that we have to realize. This is the bridge between the appearance and the reality. I, I loved it when uh, uh, Alan Watts sort of mischievously and humorously he says, 
if religion is the opium of the masses, then I must say that the Hindus have the inside dope. <laughs> so the inside dope is that thou art. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So according to the Advaita Vedanta, is 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 the idea that once Brahman is experienced as truth and reality, that appearance would then dissolve, or is it that appearances would be perceived differently? Uh, again, both are right. Uh, as long as this particular individual body persists, because there's a whole idea of karma, uh, you see, this world of appearance is ruled by causality. Mm. Brahman is beyond causality, and you also, as Brahman, you are beyond causality. But in this world of appearance, uh, this body, for example, is ruled by causality, and by that I mean by the past karma. The load of past karma is upon this body and this life. So even when a person becomes illumined, that individual existence will still continue until the death of that particular body. It's only that, that once a person is illumined, karma has no hold upon him, so he will not be pushed into other lives and other bodies as we are. We are helplessly swept along on the ebb and flow of karma. But the enlightened person knows himself or herself to be Brahman, so as Brahman is not affected by this, as long as the body remains, that person is called free while living, jivan mukta. And to that person, everything in this universe is an appearance of Brahman. Mm. So he or she sees the entire universe as Brahman, himself as Brahman and everything else as Brahman. But also see this, sees this universe, sees the body and experiences the mind and experiences names and forms of the world out there exactly as we do, but additionally knowing that it is all Brahman. But at the end of the, this particular life, it does dissolve. The physical body dissolves, the subtle body, the mind and the intellect and the, the storehouse of memories, chitta, all of them go back to nature uh, and the individual soul already free remains as Brahman. Mm. So to sum up, both of them are true. This particular manifestation continues, but for that enlightened person, that person can truly talk in the language of manifestation and appearance and Brahman being the reality. The other person on the other side of enlightenment, um, for that person it's, it's theory, yeah. uh, because this world seems to be the only reality. Mm -hmm. And also this, this appearance ceases, the appearance disappears, if you will, on the death of that particular body of the uh, enlightened person, because that's the last life for that enlightened person. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Yes. So I want to talk a little bit about the kind of the relationship between Atman and Brahman, because, of course, you know, we know that Atman is Brahman, but people often ask, you know, well, what, what does that mean? What is the nature of that? identification and is it just that the Atman is Brahman individuated and Brahman is the eternal transcendent what, what, what is how do we understand that um, the teaching that Atman and Brahman are one yes first let's look at the meanings of the Sanskrit terms okay Atman literally means the inner essence of essence I see so my inner essence is my Atman and um, the inner essence of the cat is the cat's Atman Brahman literally comes from, uh, literally means the vast. Mm. The Sanskrit root, it means to expand, to swell, to, to, to fill up. So literally Brahman means the vast. So it's a very impersonal term for, for God, if you will. Yeah. Um, now, it, according to Advaita Vedanta, non-dual Vedanta, Atman and Brahman are the same reality. 
existence consciousness bliss not a thing which exists not a particular conscious experience not a particular happy moment but as vivekananda put it it is existence itself knowledge itself bliss itself now if they it, both of them are the same thing then have i have two words for them why have two words atman and brahman yeah. it's because our experience is always of the form of subject and object look at our lives all our lives we have experienced the world and people and things out there objects and i am the subject of this experience so we always experience all the time as subject and object so that's why vedanta when it approaches us as a methodology of of taking us to enlightenment says to us the reality of the subject who you really are is the atman and that is sat chit ananda existence consciousness bliss and this world you see around yourself yes the reality of this world is brahman and that is sat chit ananda and you can as you can see then the reality of the world and the reality of yourself are one and the same thing atman is brahman that's right. such an excellent i've never heard it described th- that way in relation to just the subject and object like the subject and predicate nature of our understanding our dualistic understanding and it's a way of using the dualistic you know discursive articulation to kind of lean toward or direct ourselves toward that absolutely. non-dual absolutely you got it absolutely right in fact uh, the essence of vedanta is put in these what they call mahavakyas the great sentences mm-hmm. the most famous of them of course is tattvamasi that thou art um, but there are others also there is in fact one taken from each of the vedas uh, from the chandogya upanishad in the samaveda is the famous tattvamasi that thou art that stands for brahman and thou stands for atman so when you start off that stands for this entire universe and the reality behind it and thou stands for you the individual person but as we investigate deeper we find that this individual person is not the body not the mind and we arrive at the witness consciousness and this consciousness itself is the reality of the universe mm-hmm. so that's how uh, this discursive thinking step by step it leads us to beyond discursive thinking vedanta is very rational it relies heavily on philosophical thinking but you cannot argue your way to enlightenment <laughs> yeah. you can argue or use reason to the very verge of enlightenment but there is an intuitive leap yeah. that you need to take yeah. yes which is really where western philosophy is bankrupt in that sort of way i studied western philosophy you know originally before kind of moving into a passion for eastern philosophy and really where it stopped was that they can't it can't hold within its own um <clears throat> self understanding this leaping beyond the discursive right because everything in the western philosophical tradition is i mean there might be some examples of alternatives if you know but um but there's it's all about argument it's all about reason and so the the soteriolo- soteriological promise or or um or compulsion that we have the spiritual um yearning for something more expansive or the absolute is can't be held within that tradition to some extent that's true um in uh, india philosophy is called darshana yeah and uh, that's so if, even today if you go to indian universities you will if you look for the philosophy department they will call you uh, they'll take you to the darshana the vibhaga which means the philosophy department but the sanskrit word darshana has a deeper meaning of 
Literally, it means seeing. Yeah. Um, so seeing into the heart of reality, into who you are and what this world is, because it is understood that such seeing will solve the problems of life. It is the answer to the big questions of life. So that has always been understood in India. Um, this is something that covers all the Indian philosophies, although they are very diverse. All the schools of, um, of Hinduism, whether it's Vedanta or the different schools within Vedanta or Nyaya or Vaisheshika or Yoga or Sankhya, Kashmir Shaivism or Tantra, many other schools, or the schools of Buddhism or Jainism, they are all darshana. Yeah. They are all soteriological in their purpose and in their goal. But they are also very philosophical. They are, yeah. They, are, they're tremendous, they, they have a tremendous rigorous. emphasis, very rigorous, very analytical. I mean, if you go to the texts of Nyaya, Navya Nyaya, for example, the school of neologic, which is, by the way, in India, new means a thousand years old. <laughs> so neologic <laughs> is a thousand years old. But they are among the most rigorously argued texts I've come across in, in any literature of the world. So a lot of dependence on reason. Uh, they take all the faculties of the human uh, system, whether it's reason, whether it's emotion, whether it is the power of concentration, the power of will, all the capabilities are uh, put to use to this, the overarching uh, the goal of enlightenment. Mm -hmm. Yes. So it's, it's, it's sort of that all of these faculties are used in a way to ready the individual or ready... Um, one for the experience that they that they that the the uses of reason and logic are meant to point one to the um, the capital T truth or capital R reality is that sort of how we think of it so so it's not that reason can get you there but reason can sort of condition you to un, to um, and point you in the right, right direction absolutely. Uh, Swami Vivekananda said that our intellect, our reason is the highest gift that God gave us. Why is it that in religion we have to set reason aside? Yeah. So uh, in a number of the traditions, I would mention Advaita Vedanta or the Nyaya philosophy. In fact, most of the philosophies in India, um, uh, reason is relied upon to take us to that ultimate uh, realization. Yeah. And the, the idea is that ultimate realization is not uh, uh, is not against reason. reason. Yeah. It is not irrational. Right. It may be supra-rational, but they, you will, even from the point of view of reason, there will be nothing to criticize there. Mm. There will not be X number of steps which will take you there, like a mathematical proof, but it will bring you very close, and the conclusions that you come to upon enlightenment will also be not against reason. Mm. They will not require you to believe in something that's absurd. Yeah. Uh, they will not require you to believe in something only on the basis of faith. Yeah. Uh, so, in fact, the term used for religion, faith, nowadays, is not quite applicable to something like Advaita Vedanta or, say, Tibetan Dzogchen Buddhism. Uh, there, it's mostly re it's just reason and experience. Yeah. Could I make two points Please. here? One is that... Uh, there is one way of talking about this in Vedanta, which is the path of love and belief and faith and surrender, the bhakti approach, yeah. which has a lot in common with the major religions of the world, in Hinduism and also in Islam, Christianity, Judaism, and so on. There is another way of looking at this, which is the way of experience, which is what Vivekananda pushed so hard and which, which really resonated with the Americans uh, in the late 19th century, which is when he said, 
God has to be experienced. We must be able to, if God exists, we must be able to see it. If Brahman and Atman are realities, we must be able to experience it. And so he spoke the language of Patanjali Yoga, where you do these practices and attain these experiences called samadhis, which will demonstrate to you irrefutably that these are truths, that you are an immortal soul, you are the Atman, you're not the body and mind. Uh, so these truths can be experienced. Yeah. Do these practice and get, and this is something that, uh, that um, appealed to the scientific man- mindset you know, of the late 19th century, uh, which was very much, you must demonstrate it, you must prove it. And Vivekananda responded directly to that, yes, we can prove it. Just like science proves its results, we can prove it. But there is another way, which I, I want to distinguish from this path of experience. That is the path of knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm contrasting Jnana Yoga, the path of knowledge, with Raja Yoga, the path of meditation. The path of meditation says that these, do these, exp- uh, these uh, practices and you will get some extraordinary experiences which will prove to you the truth of spirituality and religion. religion. But the path of knowledge says to you, in, you don't have to wait for extraordinary experiences. Look at the experiences you are having right now. It brings us back to the whole problem of consciousness. Look at hearing and smelling and touching and, see, and seeing and thinking. What the, the teacher in the, uh, in the Upanishad, when the question comes that what makes me think, what makes me speak, they're not talking about extraordinary experiences. They're talking about the most ordinary of our experiences which everybody has all the time. And the claim in this path is that if you investigate this deeply, and that's what the Upanishads do, they investigate our daily experiences deeply enough you will come to the truth and you will get enlightenment right here and right now, even without those extraordinary experiences. So this path is the path of knowledge and this needs to be distinguished from the path of experience, which again needs to be distinguished from the path of, of faith. I'm not saying that you need one to the exclusion of others. If you have all three, well and good. But the, the clarity needs to be there about these paths. Yeah. That's one. And the other thing I want to mention about reason and experience is this. Sam Harris, he is, uh, you might find it strange that a person of religion is mentioning Sam Harris, but he's a very popular speaker on atheism today in America, for example. But he makes it a point to mention that he considers religion to be mostly uh, superstition and... and, um, But he makes it a point to mention that there are these two traditions which he has come across. Advaita Vedanta and Dzogchen Buddhism, the heart of Tibetan Buddhism. He says there is truth in them. I cannot deny it. That the reality which they speak about, he says uh, it's as much a truth as any scientific truth. So that's where I think these Eastern traditions have uh, a tremendous relevance to our modern narrative on consciousness studies, on science and religion. Um, so that's the point I wanted to yeah, make. Yeah, that's a beautiful point. And just to go back to what some, one thing you said that I really loved was you say that the experience is not irrational. Or it might be super rational, but it's not irrational. And I, what I like that, why I like that you mentioned that is because the mystical experience, we often refer to these experiences as mystical, and mystical often gets associated with irrational. You know, you have like irrational yes. on one hand, and then you have mystical on the other hand. But what you're saying is that it's not, and that, and that it's not going to deny anything that you perceive to be true, or it's not going to right. be. And, and so I, I think that's just a really, like, useful point to kind of meditate on um 
losing my train of thought. Where did we just end? Uh, about um, uh, the importance of reason. We are talking about that. Um, if I could just add something. Yes, please. Uh, that, Go for it. Uh, you know, I would like to just state this, that as a monk, as a person of religion, I, I'll make this clear that as a follower of Vedanta, I would never, ever believe in anything that science shows to be wrong. Yeah. Vedanta never asks you to believe in something that science has shown to be, um, to be uh, not a fact. And I would be willing to give up any of my set of understandings or beliefs if it's modified suitably by science. Uh, I think it's important to cleave very closely to the truth. Yeah. Yes. And not to be stuck with dogma and, and doctrine. Yeah. Yeah. But then, but uh, from the same perspective, there's also a way in which uh, it seems that sometimes, and, and, I, and I call this version of scientific thinking, scientism, do you yes. familiar with this term, where, where the idea is that the, the mode of understanding that is specific to science is somehow appropriate for all matters. And I think that's what the more insightful religions tend to point out is that, no, we're talking, we, we have to look at these things with kind of different vocabularies and, 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 the, and the, the vocabulary of science will not necessarily do for, you know, like we're saying, speaking of before, you know, the, 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 the vocabulary of brain stains is, brain stains is not suitable for capturing the subjective quality of consciousness. Um, so, but, but yes, they can enrich each other. I totally agree with you. One thing that I like that you were saying that I, when I lost my train of thought that I wanted to remark on was the, the new atheist that you mentioned. I think Sam Harris, is he considered one of the new atheists? Absolutely. Richard Dawkins and these uh, people. Richard Dawkins and Daniel You know, one Dennis. thing that I find... You know, it's they. This I read this incredible book that I, I wonder if you've read. It's called um, "Being Consciousness Bliss" by. It's he's a um, he's a he's a Western scholar, but I think he's within like Christian religion. He's like a part of the Christian ap- ap- um, ap- the apologetics. Is that what it's called when they yes, yes, the ap- tradition ap- of uh, defending, defending the notions the of Christian God doctrines? Yes, yeah, and he says that. And he remarks that these look; these new atheists are not actually looking at the really convincing arguments that have been happening for decades and centuries on the existence of God. And and when they when they basically argue against God, they're setting up such a straw man because they're using sort of folk notions of God that are popular in the culture. But these are not the kind of um, intellectually heavy and really thought out by the the scholars of the religious traditions the notions of god that you know that can be that are less easily deconstructed by by the arguments that they put forward um so i don't know if you have anything to say about that but i just thought it was an interesting point that oftentimes these new atheists are attacking a god that's very easy to attack that's true. I do enjoy the debates. Uh, you know, I, I enjoy Hitchens and Dawkins. And, yeah. and the reason I enjoy it, I think, is partly because I feel safe from that kind of an attack because uh, the sophistication of, uh, of Vedantic thinking runs so deep uh, that those kinds of attacks are, are not even relevant yeah. uh, to what Advaita Vedanta says. Um, I know the book you're speaking about. I can't recall the name of the author right now. He is a theologian of the Eastern Orthodox Church. That's right, yes. Right. And the book is about existence, consciousness, bliss. And in fact, the chapters are also called Sat Chit Ananda. Yeah. And he points out 
that the highest conception of God or the ultimate reality, whatever what you will, uh, is that is most clearly found in the Vedanta of, of Hinduism. But he says it's also found in the different mystic traditions of the great religions of the world, whether it is Buddhism or Islam or Christianity. Uh, I forget his name, but it was a remarkable book. It was a polemic against the, the New Atheists. Yeah, I loved it. Yeah, it, it's a wonderful book. I l always love a good, uh, a good argument against the New Atheists. <laughs> <laughs> um, great. So this has um, been such a wonderful conversation. I want to transition a little bit into talking about um, Ramakrishna because we haven't had the opportunity to talk about Ramakrishna so much um, or at all in, in the episodes of this podcast. So Ramakrishna... Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, was Vivekananda's teacher. Yes, he was Vivekananda's guru. He was uh, maybe the most significant figure in Hinduism in the uh, 19th century. Wow. Um, he was uh, a priest in the temple of Kali in Calcutta. Uh, it's a place called Dakshineshwar. And uh, he represented the traditional Hinduism because he came out of a little village outside uh, Calcutta. Calcutta, you must remember at that time, was the capital of British India. So it was a place where Western, modern Western culture was meeting uh, traditional Indian culture, Hinduism. And he represented traditional Hinduism. He did not have any uh, modern British education. So he came to this temple as a priest, and his overriding passion was, can I see God? The image of Kali. Is it just an image? Is it just made of stone? I have heard of people in the past who have seen God. Can I not see God too? And his relation to God was of child and mother. So Kali is the mother of the universe, and he is the beloved child of Kali. And he did all kinds of practices, uh, from meditation to prayer to japa, repetition of the, the divine names to the puja, and all kinds of Hindu practices. And he wept. He literally wept for, for the mother as, as the sun would sink on the... He would stand on the bank of the Ganges and he would see the sun sinking on the western horizon. He would, he would cry and, uh, that one more day has gone, mother, and I still have not seen you. And he would actually fall on the ground and rub his face on the ground till his face bled. And people thought that, oh, he's a simple country boy and he misses his mother in the village. Um, and then he had a vision of Kali. Mm. He had the first of many... He had a vision of Kali when it became real for him, that, that mother is real. And after that, he never doubted. And he would talk to Kali, and, uh, and then, he would, he, then he began teaching. But he went through a period of other kinds of spiritual practices. Somebody said he was a glutton for God. <laughs> so whenever anybody would speak about God, he would rush there to listen, and he would try to experience God in that way. So... Um, a, wandering, a wandering monk came who had a little image of the baby Rama. Rama was considered an incarnation of, of Vishnu in India. And it's called Ram Lala, the little baby Rama. And Sri Ramakrishna saw this as a living uh, God, like a little living baby who would, uh, who would toddle along after him and would speak to him. He would feed it. He would take it for a bath in the river and so on and so forth. Um, he worshipped Krishna. He was trained in, in uh, Vaishnava sadhana. He was trained in, in uh, Tantra by a guru who was a woman, a Bhairavi Brahmani, who trained him in all kinds of tantric practices. And in all these practices, he attained the same enlightenment, which he, he got in the different paths. Um, he had an Advaitic teacher, Totapuri, a wandering non-dualist monk, who came and taught him the path of non-dual Vedanta. And he had the realization of 
Satchidananda, that, that one existence consciousness bliss. Then he investigated uh, Sikhism and Islam. And for a time being, he lived as like a Muslim, pushed the Hindu gods and goddesses out of his room, and he prayed to uh, a God like a Muslim would, and he experienced the same reality. And then he um, pursued Christianity for some time and again had the experience of the same reality. So he came to this grand conclusion in Bengali, Jato Mat Tatopat. I mean, every Bengali knows this saying now. As many faiths, so many paths to that one reality. He said there's no need to quarrel in the name of religion. In fact, he says those who quarrel in the name of religion are not truly spiritual, and they're not really interested in religion. Um, all religions lead to that same reality. And he said you can learn from different religions. He did not mix and match, but he, uh, for example, he would tell the Brahmos, who were a reformed sect of Hinduism, who did not like image worship. You know, they wouldn't go and worship an image of Krishna, for example. They were very Upanishad, they can very formless and so on. He told them, what you're doing is good, but look at the love that those Vaishnavas have for Krishna. Why don't you take that love, just the love aspect of it? So he would encourage each person in his or her own way and also tell them to broaden out, not to be fanatical, and to learn from others too. Mm. He uh, taught Vivekananda, and he authorized Vivekananda to teach. Vivekananda gathered a group of young men who were the first monks of our order, and he had many, many lay disciples, men and women. So it started a huge wave, a movement in Hinduism, the waves of which have reached the shows of America too in 1893 when Vivekananda came here. And he represented, he spoke for the whole of Hinduism when he came here. So that was Ramakrishna. He passed away in 1886. Mm, mm, mm. So, pressing the idea of um, uh, many paths, one truth, a little bit, you know, with, uh, I guess, let's use the example of um, Krishna Bhaktis. So, in in the kind of system of understanding or the spiritual understanding of of that movement at least according to my you know novice understanding the the end you know the truth the final truth is to kind of live in eternity with krishna this krishna lead right. right and then and then the non-dual vedanta and also non-dual tantra uh, there there's kind of an um a formless absolute or something that there are no features it's kind of like we dissolve into this oceanic oneness yes so you know, w- with such different articulations of the final truth, how do we understand those two to be the same? Well, I'll answer this in two ways. Okay. What, the first answer is, why are there uh, so many different articulations if there is only one truth? The reason is Hinduism understands that truth as infinite mm. and beyond language. There is a Sanskrit term, avang manasagochara, which means beyond language and beyond thought. Now, when you drag the infinite beyond language and beyond thought into language and thought, you will have a variety of expressions. All of them are true because they are all talking about one reality. So that's that's one one way. Uh, That's one point I want to make. Second, the various articulations are also true in in themselves. Uh, It's like that which is formless is also the one with form. Sri Ramakrishna would say, the ocean, water of the ocean, when cooled by the devotion of the devotee, freezes into ice, into icebergs of different forms. Now, when you come and touch that iceberg, you are touching the water itself. You are not touching 
anything different from the water. It just has a form. So when you talk about Krishna or Christ or God with form or God without form or even dispense with the idea of God altogether, talk about the absolute existence, consciousness, bliss. All of it is the same reality. So it's not that they are actually different realities. The, the expressions are very different. Some are personal, some are impersonal. The attitudes one may take are very different. There is one who says that I am Brahman and I would like to be one with Brahman. And there's one who says, no, I don't want that. I want to love God and worship God and live, remain in eternity with my Krishna or my Christ. And the insight that Ramakrishna gives us is they are actually talking about the one and the same thing. If you want to remain with um, a bar of gold, for example, or with a golden image of Krishna, it's the same reality. Here it's not an image, it does not, does not look like Krishna, I mean it's a bar of gold. When you fashion it into an image of Krishna, it looks like Krishna and you can relate to it as Krishna, but it's still the same reality you're, you're looking at. Mm. So it's the same Brahman whether it is formless or with form. Mm. So that's the beautiful idea. Um, it does not mean that you have to force fit everything into Advaita. No, it does not. You can have a personalistic bhakti. Um, Sri Ramakrishna would ask, you know, do you want to be sugar or do you want to taste sugar? Either way, you are dealing with the same sugar. When you're sugar, you are not tasting the sweetness sugar, you become the sweetness. Mm. Uh, but there are some who want to remain, to retain their individuality and they want to taste sugar. So those are the, those who want God as a person. Mm. They want to love God. That's perfectly all right because they are approaching the same truth. So here you have something remarkable which allows you to retain all the tremendous diversity of different religions, different paths, because they're all very rich. They're all paths which have been developed for transcendence, for realization, for enlightenment. You see, if you were to sum up the teachings of, sum up what Ramakrishna taught, a monk told me that there's just four things you need to know about Ramakrishna, what he said. He, first thing is, God exists. Mm -hmm. Which God Whatever way you understand God in, as the impersonal Brahman, as the Shiva, which you yourself are, or um, as the lover Krishna of Vrindavan or Christ, whatever you think of God, it's all the same reality and God, that reality exists. It's not theoretical, it exists. Second, it can be experienced. Enlightenment is a real experience. Third, it must be experienced. That's the whole purpose of life. Enlightenment, God-realization is the purpose of life. And fourth, there are different ways of doing it. They're all true. They are found in the different religions of the world. In fact, the purpose of those religions at heart, there's morality, there is community, there is nation building, civilization building, and so on. And on the periphery, there is politics and so many things. But the core purpose of religion is this enlightenment. Mm -hmm. So these are the four things which Ramakrishna really taught. God exists. God can be experienced. God must be experienced. It's the purpose of life. And there are different ways of doing this. Mm, mm. Yes. Wow. So a final question, um, which may be a little bit, um, I don't know if provocative is the right word, but, you know, it seems to be a pressing concern. You know, what are your thoughts on the rise of fundamentalisms within religion? You know, what... Do you have a diagnosis for why we're seeing so much um, of this? Not that this is new. You know, it's been perhaps throughout human history that we see 
fundamentalist dogmas and and stuff like this. And, and wh- how do we respond? You know, as as practitioners or spiritual seekers who do ascribe to the kind of view that you're, the kind of holistic view, we might say, yes. that you're proposing or that you um, align with? Well, there are so many scholars and thinkers who are thinking about this problem now. Why is there so much fundamentalism in different religions of the world, across the world, and leading to so much violence and terrorism? I guess because the world is in times of change, yeah. there is tremendous change. Uh, here in the West, and even more so in a place like, say, India or yeah. the Middle East. Um, Which is new. Is fundamental in, fundamentalism in India is a rather new phenomenon. Yes, but um, what happens is when there is a tremendous change in society, people react to it in maybe two different ways, extreme ways. One yeah. is embrace the change and abandon all that is past the tradition and old customs. And religion is one of the first things usually to be dumped. Right. And the other extreme is they try to hold on fast to the, to the literal interpretation of religion. Some kind of literalism, you'll see, is at the heart of most fundamentalisms. Uh, they are trying to protect themselves against perceived threats. They don't know who they are, what they are, and um, where life is taking them. They feel threatened by the changes. Maybe that's one of the reasons why they retreat into a very rigid definition of religion. The problem with these rigid definitions of religion is they're often not anywhere near reality. They are something that you imagine from the past and you're trying to import into the present. Maybe it was not like that even in the past. And it's certainly not a reality in the present. And it leads to violence. It leads to uh, oppression. It leads... Ultimately, it's false because... uh, the ground beneath your feet will be pulled up. The, you know, the world is going to pull the rug out from underneath your feet. It's, the world is changing. You cannot hold on to that. But it leads to a lot of suffering in the meantime. I think for those who realize that the core of religion is this, what Aldous Huxley called the perennial philosophy, that there is a, a core of spirituality, a golden thread, if you will, running through all religions. There is ethics, there is spirituality, the highest common factor of all religions. That is what we have to respect and hold on to. To become more spiritual, I'm not saying to become more religious, to become more spiritual. Not abandon religions, but mine the religions for what they can teach us in the modern world. Hold on to that and try to internalize that. In this world of change, spirituality is your home. Mm. You are not, no place can be your home, no job can be your home, no set of beliefs can be your home. That internal spirituality, the Atman, the existence, consciousness, bliss within you, the the reality, that is your real home. And we should try to more and more inhabit that home and open the doors of that for people uh, across the world. Yeah. Yes. So there's a lot of sensitivity, you know, understandably so, I suppose around particular people who are native to India um, who are sensitive to the ways in which yoga and Indian philosophies are being appropriated by the West. And um, from some individuals' perspective, it is appropriating it in a way that's disrespectful or is not honoring 
um, who yoga belongs to. Sometimes you hear this, you know, now common refrain that yoga belongs to Hinduism or something like this. So what is your response to that? Do you have any thoughts on the way in which yoga has become marketed and packaged in the West? Do you see that as being problematic or, or not? Well, let me tell you two little uh, uh, anecdotes. One was I was talking to a group of American kids in L.A. in a school, and uh, it was an introductory class on Hinduism, so I was invited to speak on, uh, about Hinduism. And when I mentioned yoga, one little boy said, uh, oh, you have yoga in India too? <laughs> so, that's one side of the story. So yoga is so popular. I think sometimes yoga is more popular here in USA. Uh, you have yoga studios in every street corner maybe. Uh, in at least on the West Coast and the East Coast. Yeah. Then maybe it is in India. Uh, the other side of the story is in Portugal. Recently, we have the International Day of Yoga all over the world. It started two years ago. Uh, I was there for the first International Day of Yoga conference in Portugal, in Lisbon. And Lisbon. Uh, it's beautiful, Lisbon. Is beautiful. Yes, beautiful. Uh, it's a bit like New York is right now. Yeah. <laughs> Warm and sunny. Yeah. Um, and one of the uh, members of an Indian confederation, uh, Indian yoga delegation, said to me in a very annoyed tone, you know, Swami, do you see what's happening? All these confederations have come from different countries of the world. Some of them are genuine. Some of them are talking about yoga, which has very little to do with the original sources of yoga. Um, so we must do something about this. We speak out against this. I did not agree with him. I scolded him and I said to him, look, when yoga was uh, in the hands of a few Indians, say about 150, 200 years ago, 100, 100 years ago, before it was newly systematized and exported to the West, right. um, what did you do with yoga? How many of us did yoga? It would have died out like many other knowledge systems. When you throw it open to the world and the world adopts it in a big way, now look, the United Nations has unanimously adopted resolution for celebrating the International Day of Yoga. And it's a worldwide phenomenon. Uh, you don't have to do anything more to promote it. You can neither stop it, but you can help it. So that's what I said. It's a good thing that, the, that yoga has been given without any um, holding back to the world. The world has adopted yoga. And when any civilization adapts something, adopts something, it also adapts it. So modern America ad uh, adapts it. Um, there was this professor in California who, in fact, mentioned this phenomenon about yoga. He said, look, we in America have this uncanny talent for making even the most profound things superficial. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, but that's, I say that's only one part of it. Yeah. The enthusiasm of Americans has spread yoga across the United States and also in different parts of the world. That helps to preserve yoga. And that helps to develop yoga. Now, all developments may not be welcome, may not be very good either. Some of them are very commercial. Some of them are very far away from the roots. So this group, now I come to this group you're speaking about, who are criticizing, who are, uh, 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 who are uh, displeased about developments, the way it has developed. This group also has its role to play. Because of this critique, uh, there will be some amount of balance coming into it. Yeah. The government of India has set up uh, authoritative bodies which will teach yoga, certain forms of yoga which are uh, pure, if you will. And that has its effect too. 
So when people go out to learn yoga, they would like to know, do you come from a recognized tradition of yoga? And people ask that. And it's yeah. good that people ask it. And so we will have a balance. Yeah. I think a bit of criticism is also necessary. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that's such a diplomatic way to put it because you're right. It's that critical voice is very important for those of us who do come from a culture that has kind of adopted and adapted to really reflect on, to really notice, okay, well, what, what has changed? In what ways have we adopted this? What, and how does this contrast with the original teachings and whatnot and the other? So, yeah, you're right. This, this, this conversation is, is important on both sides. Well, thank you so much. This has been such an incredible conversation. Thank you for having me, Jacob. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so just to close, if you want to share anything about, um, you know, we read a little bit that you're here at the Vedanta Society in New York, and you're the director, correct? Uh, I was called the minister in charge. Minister in charge. The Swami in charge. Excellent. So are there any programs coming up or any workshops that you're giving that you might want to share in case the listeners want to attend? Well, um, we have regular classes in uh, Vedanta texts. So classes in uh, Aparoksha Anubhuti, which, which is running right now, uh, which is a remarkable text written by Shankaracharya about 1,400 years ago. We have classes in um, Panchadashi, which is something we call the Vedanta Study Group, which meets on Wednesday afternoons. Um, we have classes on the Gospel of Ramakrishna oh. uh, on Tuesday evenings. And on Sundays, we have the Sunday service at uh, 11 o'clock where I give Vedanta talks, followed by music and food. Uh, so no, no Vedanta talk is complete without food, I think. <laughs> so, and we have Vedanta literature there, and people can come in for the evening vespers and meditation and, and so on. So that's what we do at the uh, Vedanta Society. And I also have classes at different places uh, in New York and, and in, uh, in uh, New Jersey. One new thing is the, we are looking at having classes in the open center, in, oh, yes. in um, Brooklyn, I think it is. Oh, uh, there's an open center in Brooklyn now. I, I'm not sure. An open center somewhere here. Yeah, there's, <laughs> one, one. there's one downtown near like Midtown. I think that's yeah. the one. Okay. That's the one. Okay. So we're looking at having classes there in the fall. Right now, we are into our summer recess. We just closed yesterday. Okay. So we'll be starting all over again in the middle of September. Oh, excellent. And it's all free. Just look us up on our website on the Vedanta Society of New York, and you will get all the details of the programs on YouTube. You can look us up at the Vedanta Society on uh, YouTube. Uh, you can search for me by name, too, by Swami Sarva Priyananda. A lot of Vedanta talks out there. Yes, yes. I um, first encountered um, Swami's um, work through YouTube and watched a number of his videos, and definitely check them out because they are he's an excellent teacher, as you can probably already tell, and they're very informative. And, uh, and also he has a number of writings that you can find on acad academia.edu if you just search for Swami Sarva Priyananda. All right, thank you so much, Swami. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. The pleasure was all mine. Hello, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Swami Sarva Priyananda. To learn more about Swami and his teachings, just head to either Vedanta.org or VedantaNY.org.